Hi everybody and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne and that is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you doing on this Tuesday morning? David, I'm well. I've had a good start. I'm really in a good groove with my uh, new regimen of uh, a walk to the pool, my community pool, rather than driving. That's a good walk to and from. A uh, beautiful view of the mountains and the way. 50 laps, bit of stretch in the hot tub, back for blowgun practice, uh, more stretching and a bit of free weights and breakfast. And then I'm kind of... Um, feel like I've, I've made a start. I'm thinking about getting into bow hunting, and I told you via text that should a serious Mad Max-style apocalypse happen, you and I will have to be a team in the Nevada desert, right? So I, I'll get the bow, you'll get the blowgun, tipped with, tipped with poison, right? And we'll, uh, we'll be able to have uh, raid, raid parties or we go to other people's Absolutely. camps and, uh, you know, sneak up on them, assassinate them, take their bread. Um, they're mutants, right? Like, they're not human anymore, so we don't have to feel bad about murdering them. They've got melted faces and, you know, 12 toes. So they've crossed, they've crossed that, that threshold. Yeah, we've been preparing for this. I mean, did you see the, uh, the formal article I sent you on blowgun poisons? Yeah, that, uh, that was great. That guy is the is the is the world <coughs> authority. Mm-hmm. It's it's absolutely intense. On blowgun poison, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's um, basically. I have a thirty-eight. I know that you have a gun as well, but I love the idea of someone breaking into your home. Well, I don't love that idea. But I love the idea, hypothetically, of someone breaking into your home and just hearing, thump, and then yeah. the last thing they see before the lights go out, before they're visited by the frog god, the spirit inside the poison that's going to take them yeah. across the river Styx, yeah. is, is a little, there you a, go. Little it's... a little, like a, like a pin from a pin cushion, right? Just, and he's out. It's such a beautiful thing, you know, and where it's developed around the world, basically in the headwaters of the Amazon and Borneo, and to some extent on a couple of the really rugged islands in the Philippines, it's because the forest canopy is so intense, it's very difficult to get bow shots off, Mm -hmm. and it's particularly hard uh, to shoot in amongst trees. and what, what the, the uh, Dayaks in Borneo do is with their longer blowguns, they also have these really incredible spears attached to the end. Mm. So if faced with a wild boar, you know, they've got a really great spear as well. So imagine, imagine it's wild just a beautiful pigs art being form. a real problem. Imagine living yeah. in a kind of existence where. We look at pig. I saw a video on Twitter of two pigs fending off a bear attack. It was like a security camera footage. And, you know, they're low to the ground. They're stocky. And they chased a full-on, I believe it was a black bear, out of the, out of the pen. And so there are people, though, who, who exist in a world under threat of pig attack, boar attack, right? Frightening little... There's a great 
uh, colloquial expression in the Solomon Islands. It's actually a full body performance, but it's uh, a kind of uh, grunting scream, if you can imagine, and then a, a rattling, mushy sound in the mouth <laughs> that sort of sounds like branches. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a wild boar on the loose, and and people do that when someone has just gone off in a conversation in one of their personal derangement syndromes. To pick up one of our earlier topics, so if if one of your friends is just going, you know, just starting to go off, and you know, you somehow triggered or pressed that button, uh, that sound might come out, and it it, it of course is it's done with humor. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a great way of diffusing the situation because no one wants to be seen as like a wild boar just, you know, on a one boar stampede. I mean, that's not a good look. So I like that. I like that a lot, too. Chris, you've been giving me your imaginative challenges before you give me mine. I've got my words. I've got my five words to choose, too. But I'm curious what this week's band is and what your aphorism is for us okay well I I went in first with good Samaritans with handguns mm -hmm. and then I thought I don't know if that's gonna do well on Spotify right. for the band mm -hmm. you know I think it might be a little bit too edgy uh, but I had been thinking kind of uh, not acid lounge but acid garage yeah uh, which is kind of the, maybe the, sort of the music genre I'm working in. I don't know. So I did get around to acid reflux. Yeah. I thought that would just be uh, that would be the alternative to Good Samaritans with handguns. I like it. But if that's a a little bit of the easy way, I've I've come at it hard with. Uh, an aphorism, which is one of the, it's a red mountain aphorism. I was hiking up the trail, you know, and always looking for the beautiful female cougar that lives, lives up in the caves mm -hmm. uh, on the black lava side. So not on black mountain, not red mountain. But uh, here it is. Because I think this is something about, uh, and, and you and I talk off Michael about the importance of self-discipline and self-responsibility but also self-acceptance you know mm -hmm. just to say well that's the kind of you know that's what I like <laughs> you know and this is the way I do things sometimes we need to do that too to be in balance there so here's this week's aphorism the very moment you relax your obligations to possessing self-knowledge you immediately start to learn something. The quieter the blowgun shot, the more accurate. So, that's my Can you do me contribution favor, for the week. I do like that. Can you say that one more time for me? Sure. The very moment you relax your obligations to possessing self-knowledge, you immediately start to learn something. Yeah. The quieter the blowgun shot, the more accurate. That is so interesting. And I think nicely parallels a lot of Buddhist 
meditation practices, the idea of becoming empty, the emptiness, that's when you reach a true ability for things to come in. It goes back to what we've talked about before, right? About how where we are closer to rivers than ponds, you know? We're sort of, we're not this one stagnant collection of fish, it's a, it's a flow. And when you do quiet down a little bit, it's almost like, you know, breaking a dam in a river a bit, right? Like you stop trying. So, cause it kind of feels going off of that, that, that what we are, like, who are you? You are everything that happens around you. Absolutely. I mean, I think all of our heroes have said that in one form or another. I think it's a great world cultural insight, which is forgotten moment to moment in the hugger-mugger of our, you know, silliness. But it, it is absolutely true, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. Well, I would like to pick up on that in just a moment because I've been having... Uh, a lot of thoughts about the the mind and how the mind works and how positive reinforcement self-help can be helpful in its in its own way if it's combined with discipline before that before we do all that i would like to receive in a spirit of gratitude <laughs> my imaginative challenge for the day see if i can get my brain working oh. Okay, okay, this is good, this is good. And you've got your words, and I have a fun thing to report from uh, a friend who has, is, is uh, a pretty regular listener, uh, following up on the word substitution idea, and in some cases a letter, just, just changing a letter. Mm -hmm. And uh, at work, the, the word workload mm -hmm. has been changed to porkload to you know what's your pork load like you know it's a whole different mindset and it's been it's been well received in a in a kind of a high-tech situation no less That's which awesome. i think is so we're we're on to some good things with with what we put forward well your imaginative challenge uh today uh, is, is a big cultural one, okay. but I think it leads into, it, it forms an important backdrop uh, for uh, maybe some more individually focused things uh, that we might want to talk about. You're talking about the, you know, the power of positive thinking in an individual sense, but we all have this giant cultural backdrop, this matrix that we're embedded in, and uh, I think it's a nice follow-up to our discussions of the disappearing inventory, which is mm -hmm. uh, a big enough idea, I think, to keep sort of uh, unraveling uh, from time to time. So here's, here's the setup. Is history constructed? Really? Is it as malleable and flexible, and if not imaginary, at least provisional, as many people claim today? Big claim. If it's truly constructed and flexible, I would say, then we should be able to choose not to make it mm. or to suspend production 
for a time. You know, how we reckon that amount of time might be an issue if we suspend history, but that's neither here nor there. But we consciously and pervasively could take a break. So your challenge is to conceive of a scenario with some key details provided where history gets put on hold. What would this mean to cultures, lowercase plural, culture with a capital C, which we often talk about, and civilization? What would it look like at street level? And I think a practical way to do this is to take us for a walk around your town if the pause button has been pressed on history. Interesting. Any questions? No, I love it. That's great. What an exercise. Okay, cool. I like it when I get ones that are um, where nothing immediately comes to mind. That means it's going to be like the past few. I've immediately I've been like, oh, got it. Yeah. This one's. uh, Yeah, I always want to change things up a little bit. I think this is a real good disappearing inventory challenge because it. Mm It, you know, it really asks some, some deep questions about what are, what are the assumptions we're making about history? So many people talk, keep talking about revising history. What the hell are they talking about, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I, I think that, that a, a focus, you don't have to just take us for a walk around in your town, but I, I thought that would be a good street level way. Uh, and you do that so well of taking a big uh, culture, uh, canvas you know Mm -hmm. that could be just too huge to deal with and then putting it into a frame that is manageable Mm -hmm. no i'm looking forward to this yeah i'll be thinking as we talk okay cool so what i wanted to talk about today was the power of positive thinking and the fact that it's so maligned in our society because I feel the, the kind of, the new converts, they call it the pink cloud when you stop drinking. Everything feels beautiful, pregnant with possibility. And that's where I'm at with positive thinking. So list, uh, people who've listened to the show for a long time might know that I have suffered for decades. Now, I don't even know when it really began with a kind of crippling obsessive compulsive disorder that largely revolves around numbers counting and catastrophic thinking and I won't get too into it I think that there are resources online if you don't suffer from this kind of thing you can kind of get an idea of, of what it is but it's it's really been hindering my my progress my personal progress as an artist as an adult as somebody who lives within an economy and a society that depends on on being able to get things done. And I came across a quote from a book that my friend Ren posted on Twitter of all places. It's called The Book of Key by Koichi Tohei. And the quote puts forward a very simple idea and that is that the frame with which you should approach things is one of saying to yourself that you can do something. It says basically eliminate eliminate the idea of can't 
you can say that you couldn't after you try and fail but you approach everything with I can and you also you get rid of weasel words so this is a this is a linguistic reprogramming which is something that we talk about a lot on the on the on the phone yes but on the podcast as well uh, the idea that you don't equivocate you speak boldly you they call it decisively, decisively. Yes. yeah they call it boasting in the book and boasting has a kind of negative connotation he gets into the difference between boasting and bragging but you know so so you take these ideas and it has worked like a miracle charm for me because i wake up every morning and i say you know i can overcome these impulses that are inside of me and i don't know if there have been hundreds of other things that have been going on that have primed me for this, but it's really worked like a charm. So I wanted to get your thoughts on what's going on there. Well, I think there are a couple of things going on. I mean, you know that I'm an enormous advocate uh, for reprogramming the mind through linguistics, through the language that we contemplate, the language that we read, the language that we write, and most importantly, the language that we speak, that, that somehow the, uh, the double appearance, because we always have the interior voice, the interior monologue, but when we vocalize something, uh, that is a powerful, magical, physical, structural change within ourselves at any rate you know it may not be for the world at large and it's one of the issues with things like you know people obsessed with their pronouns uh i as as little patience as i have with that in one sense i do understand it because to them it is a kind of magical and ritual uh change yeah. that they're enacting right and i i support that in principle um, so I think that, that when we make uh, these kinds of disciplined, intentional choices to reprogram our brain, we're getting as close to putting our hands on our mind as we possibly can. There is an inherent limitation, difficulty in that as every human uh, for the last quarter million years has, has recognized. but you can't give up on that either you just have to come at it from oblique directions uh to slip up on it sneak up on it you know stealth ambush uh that's what a lot of um you know indigenous societies have been about that's what sort of shamanism is about is coming in from sort of uh some spiral direction that isn't a direct head-on nullifying uh self-canceling proposition uh, so I think that's something really important. And in, in very structural terms, you know, you go back to uh, neuro-linguistic programming, which was a kind of psychotherapy that emerged in the 60s. Uh, two uh, authors were involved. It was, there's a lot to it. I think uh, it kind of fell out of favor because, of, you know, the way that sort of uh, cliques form and, and, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but one of the key issues was to listen for uh, strength of verbs and to listen for tense. That when things are placed in the past tense, there's a tendency to, to rigidify 
and and propositions get ossified they can't change you know so that is another level of, of, of positive thinking in maybe it would be just more open thinking more um, more ready to move in different directions rather than fixed you know because I think right. that the negative thinking is uh, I mean I have someone close to me I know who I can bet you I, I bet you five thousand dollars that every single conversation would have at least one and I would suggest multiple appearances of the phrase my problem is yeah there you go right the, the your, you know your problem it's not even the problem it's it's my, no. my problem and that and yeah, go ahead sorry well, and you could just hear the. I think I did the inflection pretty well you did, too. Yeah, my it's pretty faithful. Yeah. 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 But even if you just said the problem or a problem or you know what bothers, I mean, there might be any other way to put it, but it's. And of course, the irony is it, and I think this is something to. Uh, I, I'd like your thoughts on about this book and, and, and the current sort of, of, of training idea that you have. Um, because the person I'm thinking of says my problem is multiple times. So the idea of there being a single discrete problem is is just not where it's at at all. There's obviously multiple problems. Right, right, multiple problems. Well... Where to begin, where to begin? Outside of the neuro-linguistic programming aspect of that, I think that it comes down to your aphorism that we started the show off with and the idea of thoughts as being, <coughs> excuse me, a river, a flow, an emptiness, Instead of thinking about things in terms of problem, you could perhaps substitute them in some cases for opportunity, experience, uh, puzzle. Even a puzzle is a better... Maybe I'll start saying that, actually. When I see somebody cut me off in traffic and slam on their brakes, instead of thinking, you know, what's this guy's fucking problem? Just saying, well, I'm puzzled. I'm puzzled by that. Um, so I think that where, wh what I'm doing personally is I'm making sure that I approach everything with positivity. I was talking to you today because we share an aversion to the number 13, that un mm -hmm. unluckiest of numbers. And for me, it ripples out into its multiples, so 26, 39, 52, so on. And you mentioned printing out the number 13 and putting it up on the wall. And I might do that with all of the, it's, it's exposure therapy. It's really the only thing outside of medication I've heard working. And there's, at the risk of oversimplifying, there really is a, a way that you can approach the world where you are constantly throwing yourself into new experiences. I was explaining to somebody what my OCD is and the kind of rituals that I was doing. And they said, oh, so you're doing these rituals so that, you know, good things 
will happen? And I said, no, it's not that at all. It's a conservative mental illness. It's in the interest of keeping things the way that they are. It's a not wanting things to change. So whether it's taking up a new hobby or entering into a project kind of boldly without fully having a map, we talked about last episode, um, the, the mode of living in which you are getting up off of the couch and throwing yourself into it when lose or draw, I think is a massive step in the right direction. Well, totally, totally it is. And, and, and what you're trying to do, is, I mean, you do need the courage to, uh, to break with routine in some way. But just to think of routine from, and I, I would think that maybe Gus's perspectives uh, would, would help on that. Um, I mean, you know when you walk uh, your dog across a, a park area and you watch the dog, you see the dog responding to a whole other world that you don't, you know, you only know it's there because of the dog. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we start using and people have a problem with that word, I don't know why, because we use tools and use a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we use each other as ways of seeing things differently, mm-hmm. I think we can break out of some of those fossilizing patterns. Uh, for me, the, the, the trick with 13 was, I mean, this just started two weeks ago, and I've really remediated it, you know? Mm-hmm. I really have. Mm-hmm. And what was helpful was to go back to childhood perspectives. Uh, I've been thinking about how children learn how to read, and it's interesting that many bright people, I wonder if you're in this category, uh, who, you know, reading people, we often don't remember how we learn to read. You know, it just kind of, it's back there in the fall, it's just something that we took on board, we were read to, but it's a little bit, you know, murky in the way that people who learn how music often, they, they really, they don't really remember some of the deep structure that they took on board. But I do remember uh, learning how to write, as in printing, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, as in making letters. And I remember distinctly on this uh, thick, ugly paper uh, with the lines made and a big heavy pencil, like a carpenter's pencil almost. Yep, yep. I don't know how they expected kids to hold that. I had the same thing. But I, I wrote, you know, it was painful, right? Mm-hmm. And I wrote t- together and I realized it was to get her. And I thought, oh, wow. So when I broke down 13, I looked at that and I thought, wait a minute, what, what's my problem here? One and three. I mean, how can anyone not like one and three? One is fundamental, and three is uh, a world-significant uh, number for luck, for logic, for structure. I mean, you can't go anywhere, you know? Right, right. You can't go anywhere anytime where three isn't important. So you put one and three together, what's the problem, you know? Mm-hmm. And I realized there isn't a problem. And if I think when we start thinking like that, we can really rewire a whole bunch of assumptions, unexamined uh, beliefs, structures of thought that, that we haven't really considered, as well as any private OCD 
magic rituals. And I, I have a lot of them. It took me a long time to, uh, to really uh, understand them. But I've had that since I was a child. And you do have to kind of, you know, accept some things. But it's worth trying to, uh, to rewire a few of them anyway. I think that combining that process of breaking down 13 into 1 and 3 or together into to get her with the concept of the Matang from last episode uh, would be really a fun and interesting and perhaps even kind of evolutionary artistic tactic to begin to build a stick map of your brain and what bothers you because you're turning a problem into a project and you're representing it. It wouldn't look exactly like a Matang. Maybe somewhere between a, a typical map and maybe one of those great, uh, you know, word maps. The Mark Lombardi, was that his name? Yeah. Lombardi. Yeah. Uh, that seems to me. I'll start that up and I'll post one of those uh, next week to kind of take one thing, one bugbear that I have, whether it's numerical or spatial, because sometimes this, because uh, what is space, but just, you know, it's all, it's all angles and numbers and things like that anyway. Uh, and maybe try to make some cool looking art out of it. Kind of defang it through the artistic process. That's a fantastic idea. And next year at this time, uh, I have a small art show on in Seattle now. Well, it's 24 pieces, and it's, uh, I think, really cool. It looks but great. But next yeah. year is a... Thank you. Yeah, I was, I'm pleased with how they mounted it. Uh, next year, I'll be on site uh, for a month or so doing workshops in the community, and I hope that you could come join me and that we might even do uh, a documentary film because... Uh, working with you know some of the homeless street people in Pioneer Square, mm. making stick maps and reconfiguring oh. possibilities. I mean, I think, Dave, that would be phenomenal. I would appreciate the uh, moral support, some bodyguard security with that group, but also I think we would be an just awesome team working on that. And I would bring along some really cool raw materials uh, to fool around with. So think about that for, for next year. I know how busy you are, but this is, I think, a great idea, and it's, it's central to uh, the, the, the title of that exhibition is Ghostscapes, mm -hmm. uh, mm. which is, you know, it ties in very much with No Country. Uh, I mean, all, everything's connected, as we say, but it is very much about using psychogeography and the physicality of making art, uh, you know, at a table, maybe with other people, breaking through that barrier of solitary writing, uh, but really communing and, and making something that is an externalization of a secret, in, you know, interiority yeah. that is otherwise hard to reach. No, that's you know? amazing. I would love to do that. Thank you for asking. I. I love the term ghostscapes because it ties into another thought that I have. Whenever I talk to people about my OCD, if I'm talking to a normie, I might say, I might use words like neuro-linguistic programming uh, or, you know, my, my, my brain is creating new mental pathways. These are all things that could be understood. But I believe 
that creativity is not necessarily a god or a goddess, but that it is a substance. And I think that when you're a child, I think that that substance is completely untouched. It's, it's raw material. This is why children can see ghosts. This is why they can recall their past lives, because they're connected to this ambrosia, this tasty, delicious, beautiful substance that's in, in the world. But as you get older, I believe that there are entities, demonic entities perhaps, whatever you want to call them, who love to feed on creativity. And I think that the, that means, necessarily, the way out of it is through creative expression. Because you can't, like, these things get you running around in circles about the number 13. And you think to yourself, well, why don't I like that? I don't know. It's just bad. I better not uh, land on 13. And the whole time, they're just sucking that creative life force out of you. So you have to, you have to fight back with the very tools that it's, it's made to be used by. You know, it's, it's so, uh, it can be seen from so many different angles, but people who have had an interest in labyrinths and mazes, and there's some beautiful, beautiful books. Again, a world culture idea, uh, conceptually and also physically. You know, we have it everywhere. We have it, you know, in obviously in, in Greece, you know, the, 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 uh, the labyrinth in Crete, the Minotaur, but in mythology after mythology around the world, we see mazes as a symbol, related to the mandala symbol. And it's interesting that whether you talk to people who are practically interested in a kind of physical adventure or mental challenge way, or say mathematicians and people interested in probability and working out problems more in a uh, cerebral way. The truth is the same. Mm -hmm. The way out of a labyrinth is to allow yourself to get lost, to go deeper. Mm -hmm. The secret of the way out is, is to get deeper in. Mm -hmm. you know? that's, mm -hmm. that's the way. If you, if you fight that, you're fighting gravity in a sense. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah, they want you to fight it. Whatever the, the in, my, in my, well, to me it's real, but in my metaphor or my symbol, the fight is what, you know, you give off that energy that they can feed on, basically. Like the more, it's like a finger trap. The more you struggle, the tighter it gets. So Yeah, or Sisyphus, right? you know? Right. The myth of Sisyphus, pushing that damn raw. I mean, Jesus, after a while, you know, at first you think, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry about that. Mm -hmm. uh, th and then you start to think, wait a minute, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the way to go, <laughs> you no. know? That's not the way to go. Um, you want Sisyphus to be making a catapult or something, don't you? Just something, a little bit of fight back there. Right, you know? right. Oh, this is great though. I'm gonna go to. The, I'm gonna go get paint. Actually, I have paint here. I have Gus's finger paint. Ooh, maybe I'll start with finger painting. That seems. That's a great way to begin. Yeah, I'm gonna. Easy to clean paint. up. We have red, blue, and yellow. So I got the primary colors. I can mix them myself to get the kind of stuff that I'm looking for. I'm getting pretty hyped on this idea. 
I'm a 35 year old man and I'm getting excited about finger painting. But that's the thing, right? That's what we want to go for. That's crystal radio, man. Think, think of the problems that start in everyone's lives when we give up finger painting. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. What did we give up finger painting for exactly? Cell phones. You know? Cell phones and spreadsheets and commutes to work and processed food. I could go on. Tobacco, alcohol. Tobacco and alcohol, yeah. Being cool. <laughs> right, you right, know, right, being right. cool. Right. This dovetails uh, so nicely with my overall artistic manifesto that I'm working on in little diaristic entries in uh, my gray notebook every day. It, it deals a lot with Byung Chul Han, the uh, contemporary philosopher, uh, his idea of the idiot, right? His diagnosis of, uh, or his diagnoses of what's going on with uh, culture are many but it all comes back to this concept of the idiot the person who's able to tap into their inner uh, child or you know somebody who's just not willing to engage with all of the things we just listen to and instead go finger paint it's perfect it's it's a perfect match for that and i think there's real medicine in this idea the positivity the i can and the you're not, you know, we're not going to be like the adult babies who, where it's like a sex thing, you know? They put on diapers and they want to be treated like a baby. That's not what I mean at all. But that, but the finger painting and the, you know, arranging. People used to build ships in bottles and nobody thought that that was weird. It was just, it was a hobby. But maybe, mm-hmm. maybe something like that would be cool. I don't know. Tactile, hobby creative flow multimedia you know Gus is really into music maybe I'll buy a little maybe I'll buy a Moog like a like a starter Moog and, and play with it I don't know I'm, I'm going all over the place but this is because it's uh, it's an exciting idea what what's happening is the river's flowing right now as I'm speaking <laughs> you know what I mean yes I do I do. I feel I'm in the same groove, and I think it's very gun. interesting. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm making, uh, I, I've got my first album, Victrola in the Jungle, released on in the first week in September, and I'm already into the next album, which uh, I was thinking about. I mean, I'm spelling the word Cosmos Eros. And I realized that means cosmoceros, kind of like a uh, an astronomical love rhino, you know. And I thought, okay, um, so go with the energy and the creativity, you know, when it's there, and and make it a discipline to yeah. to see how that can be maintained. Break it down. I mean, you know, what do you, what do you really need to do today? Right. You know, right. that's the real problem. Yeah. It's. Uh, you know, Boyle's Law in chemistry, which is it's about volume and pressure of gas, but it really kind of colloquially gets to, well, a gas will expand into whatever space it's given. And I know so many people, and you ask them, how are you doing? Well, I'm really, I'm super busy. And you think, oh, okay, are you accomplishing anything? And I asked that to one of my friends, and there was a moment of absolute 
just I thought, well, no, I'm not going to listen to how busy you are all the time. What What are you achieving? You know, mm-hmm. that was what I wanted to say, and I said it. You know, um, so I think focus on on that. Um, but I wonder, you know, to go back to your thought about uh, why there is a snarky uh, cynicism oh, yes. Yes. and mm-hmm. disquiet and sort of moist uh, butt crack behavior <laughs> around positive thinking and oh, way with words you know there there are some um, I, I think that is passing I, I have two answers three answers for that one I think that has been uh, certainly an American national if not Western international mood and mode for the last 50 years. I think it was an outgrowth of the anti-hero cool and a rejection of everything. Um, it, it's kind of, it comes from, it's the downside of cool. Mm-hmm. It's just, I'm not, you know, it don't impress me much, you know. It's like, it's a little, who gives, you know, who cares? Uh, so there is that which is just tiresome and I think is kind of running out of gas. Played out. Yeah, it's totally played um, out. You know, I mean, it's just, I mean, it. what do those people have to offer? You know, you go, okay, you're bored, you're, you, and nothing's too, you know, cool enough for you, fine. Uh, meanwhile, I'm going to go out and have some fun with some interesting people. You know, that's the attitude that, that's, that's going to just take over finally. Uh, but... There is something about that I think that those people have right because you and I both have have winced and, and sickened and perhaps vomited when people like Oprah, you know, yeah. say, you know, dream big yep. and everyone's, you know, can achieve their goals and you just think, wait a minute, this person's three hundred and fifty pounds and yeah. looks like yeah. they ran into a wall five times, and their IQ is, you know, marginal. And no, they're not going to achieve their dreams. Right. Don't tell them that. Right. Um, right. But here's a little bit. This is you know one of the the interesting uh, people who's all over this. And if you do a really close read of him, you see that he's just so conflicted he's not sure because almost every alternatingly his his most famous quotations excerpts uh, are in conflict Mm -hmm. they go backwards and forwards and I'm thinking of Ralph Waldo Emerson this is one of his most famous ones to believe your own thought to believe that what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men. That is genius. <laughs> and I think that some people would go, well, that's what Charles Manson thought. Yeah, Hitler, you know? etc. Yeah, yeah. There are some problems with that. But, I mean, I think we could break this down very quickly and we could say, first of all, let's pick up that last word, genius, which is a 19th century obsession. That was their OCD thing. If you were part of the lettered, uh, literate, artistic, intellectual world, you were obsessed with the idea of what defines genius because it was a way of talking about a lot of things like evolution, 
competition. There was a whole, you know, way of, of talking about things. Um, and also people were thinking, were hoping that they were all geniuses too. <laughs> the way that, you know, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. obsessed smart people do think. But isn't it just like if you said to believe your own thought, to believe that what is true for you is true at some level, why couldn't you just leave it there? If you left it there, and, and instead of saying it's true for all men, forget the, the men, you know, people go, oh, yeah, yeah, for yeah. all people. Right, right, right. Oh my God, all people. Uh, 19th century folks, mm-hmm. uh, sorry. Um, so history if you just left that out, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, wouldn't that solve the problem? Just say it's, it, it's the, the part of that statement that's weird is that you're reasoning from, it's just a phenomenal degree of inductive reasoning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're saying, well, what's going on in my head is what's going on in everyone else's. And it's just, ain't so. Right. Hmm. I do like that. Like, I do like that idea, though. Again, like you said, if you take the genius part away from it, and you say that, you know, whatever is true for me is... Well, see, again, it's a balance. It's an oscillation. You go back and forth, right? Maybe the way that we think about the world and perceive the world doesn't necessarily have to be how we perform our role in it. And maybe the oscillation between those two things is is actually the nature of genius. Being able to go very much inside believe that you know as as it is in me so it is out there and then you know also (laughs) whatever mood you're in you don't project onto the barista making your coffee at starbucks right um but yeah i do like that well it's interesting you know to try to take any of those elements out like genius or true for all men you know that's a what, what you end up doing is castrating the idea. Right. I mean, he's putting forward a complex notion of what genius is. That's really what uh, is the essence of, of that excerpt. Mm-hmm. It's a definition of genius. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people read it. It's kind of this is sort of a Rorschach test. You know, they read it more in terms of, well, this is, if I believe it enough, mm-hmm. then it's true. Ah, yeah. Well, wait, no, no, no. That's that's not what's being said. Actually, uh, it's true if you're a genius, right? You know, right, right. So you 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 basically you'd be able to find out relatively quickly whether or not you were a genius if you were in any doubt. Yeah, yeah. If you were in any doubt. Yeah. Um, let's leave that there. I like that a lot. I like where we're going with this. This is this is. I know the episodes are good when I get giddy uh while we're talking so i know that this is a this is a banger um i was thinking about the imaginative challenge and Mm -hmm. i was thinking about history and i was thinking about how hot it is outside i've been recording most of this outdoors i'm getting sunlight and bitten by mosquitoes and crawled on by bugs it's a the way that this should be recorded i think um and i was thinking about you know me and my buddies history's on pause so we get done uh, worshiping the air conditioner in the morning um, because the lack of history, I think, would place more emphasis on sacred objects, objects kind of divorced from their, uh, from where they came from. 
they begin, they, they're able to become objects in themselves. Uh, I was thinking about, you know, if history was on pause, what it would be like to go through old photo albums, right? Like, what is it? What does it mean to have all of these memories that have been, you know, sort of snapshots of people's lives? But if it's history that's just been on pause for right now, and you know, it started today, like okay, we're holding off on all of it. Well, obviously, the first thing you'd have to do is turn the internet off, right? You you can no longer get updates on your phone because the phone is just a history creating device. It's constantly, it's grist for a mill, right? It's taking the constant present and turning it into things that have happened that, oh, by the way, we've conveniently arranged into a sequence for you to understand the story. So you'd have to turn that off. But there's, here in Edmond, where I live, if you go out onto 15th Street and you turn right on Boulevard and then you turn left, you'll be at UCO College, which is a, it's a nice little... Uh, college. It's, it's got good ratings uh, as far as colleges go. But out in front of it, there's this enormous statue of an Indian chief. And I mean huge, 30 feet tall. It's bronze. It's got this beautiful headdress going on. And it's obviously representative of the people, the original people who were moved here for the most part. Uh, but it also, that statue speaks a lot to current, the current writing of history, particularly with race relations. So my mind went to all of the issues that we have, the, the history that we're trying to fix or rewrite, and in some ways, uh, you know, perform new history on a day-to-day -day basis. I was thinking about how cool it would be, just for while history was on pause for a second, to be able to really appreciate this, you know, this man covered in feathers holding a spear as, you know, a god or just a really cool work of art. Um, so that's what I got for today. Um, it sent my mind off in a lot of different directions. Okay, well, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. I, I think there's actually something really uh, important that um, beautiful phrase able to become objects or and I, you almost said able to become objects again or able to become mm -hmm. objects mm -hmm. in their own right you know this is one of those deep issues within culture of our time where people are so fundamentally confused there's all this anxiety about being objectified when actually we're struggling as individuals to be recognized as discrete objects of significance. Mm -hmm. You know, it would help to be objects of significance rather than trivial objects. But the notion of, of the category of objects ha is, is, not, is not valent, right. you know? Right. Right. It's not, it, it's completely open and in need of, of great, you know, uh, assessment and determination about values and worth. Mm -hmm. uh, but in in many ways, to be, it would be it's quite an honor to be objectified, to to have that strength, to have that substance, mm -hmm. to have that belief. Yeah, to be de you know? desubjectivized. 
Yeah. Yeah. That you're actually really there. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking of, I have uh, friends with, uh, the, the son is autistic, and the uh, sibling growing up was faced with the problem of sometimes being very much there and noticed by the autistic uh, brother, and then suddenly being invisible. And he yeah. could run right, you know, through her. Mm-hmm. And it's an honor and a privilege, this life, to be drawing breath, to have blood circulating, mm-hmm. to have a kind of objective presence, yeah. to have a shadow, to cast a shadow, to, to have some things about us that we don't know. You know, I mean, I kind of lose patience with people who aren't into that frame. Um, but then I think what's what you really got very clearly to an idea that so, that so many people talk about today, but we don't follow through the implications. You know, you said if, if we're going to shut off history, well, the first thing that's going to have to be quieted is the internet. Mm-hmm. You know, and yet we have all of these people today who are using the internet to disseminate ideas about revising history is if they know the values and mindsets and interior psychological states of people, you know, 200, 400 years ago, uh, and can be, and they can be judged by our contemporary values, mores, and frames, when we're not even aware of what history means to us this morning. Yeah, the history-making machine of the internet and. MSNBC, Fox News, and NPR, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, I, I think that just uh, just goes, you know, we have to keep looking at that, keep harping on it. The other thing I love is uh, the uh, Native American statue. That um, I mean, Oklahoma is, of course, a hugely important uh, state for Native American culture for uh, some very sad reasons in terms of uh, the Trail of Tears, but also some very powerful reasons. But one of the things I would like to do if I, uh, when I get out your way is to go to uh, the Cherokee Heritage Center in Park Hill, Oklahoma. Uh, it's a fantastic educational resource. Uh, and amongst other things, uh, you can make blowguns. The Cherokee are the only uh, North American uh, indigenous people to really get into uh, blowgunning. And they have workshops, and it's really cool. You can go online and check it out. I, I would really love to do that with you. If I'll I have to take Gus to do that, that too. Yeah, you must. It's really well done. I was very sorry about the COVID thing because this is a vital community center that is done with a great heart. Uh, I've had uh, students, I've known people, I've I went there a long time ago. Um, they're just doing a lot of really cool things and the vibe is good. It's, it's, it's positive, it's upbeat, it's, it's not any of the things that it could be in the wrong uh, PC-minded uh, hands. Right. It's not. Right. right. Well, that sounds amazing. I'm gonna, I just wrote that down. Park Hills. Let's see where Park Hills is. Park Hills or Park Hill might just be single, I don't know, but um, the Cherokee Heritage Center. There may be a cup, but there's there's a if it, the uh, I do know that there is a real 
uh, tradition of workshopping uh, crafts and art forms and cooking and so it's a very hands-on genuine educational thing it's not just walking through a you know hearing robot voices tell you the story and you see a little diorama right, or something right. not at all oh okay it's by Tahlequah so it's out east of uh, Tulsa okay that's not too far that's maybe a two-hour drive from where I'm at it's worth it it's worth it I think it would be a great thing for Gus to be exposed to when he's a little bit older uh, you'd enjoy the hell out of it. Yeah, I really you know? would. I would love uh, to make a blowgun. It's, it. you know, it's, yeah, yeah. Well, look, that would be a great start because they are participants legitimately. We think of blowgunning in terms of, of South American Borneo uh, primarily, but but the Cherokee have full right to it and they're doing some really cool things with it. And I think you'd have fun and I'm glad it's only two hours away. Mm-hmm. Well, that's amazing. That's all. This conversation has just been so great. Um, do you have tips and tools for us today? I do. I, I, I want to. Um, I think what I'll do with the first aspect of, of a tool is to float it as possibly a, a follow-up idea for for next segment. A way of looking deeper into some of the issues we've discussed this episode and last time. Uh, I want to get to the the practice of triage, oh, which yes, is a yes, beautiful, yes, yes. beautiful idea. Uh, it's a it's a very practical uh, science based skill that I had the good fortune to get some exposure to when I trained to be a paramedic. But it is it's a fundamental skill that works well outside the healthcare industry. And just briefly. It ties into the larger things that we've been talking about in terms of uh, thought contagion and derangement syndromes and inherited unexamined frames of value. You know, we hear a lot about values, you know, values are important, you know, and we talked about the difference between values and skills. Uh, And I want to put it in even simpler practical frame on this. Consider the difference between values and priorities. You know, values have this kind of noble quality to them. They appear to be and are often thought to be more serious than priorities. You know, they're deeper, they're enduring. And I I want to question that because I've been thinking about this lately and it, it seems to me that values are pretty ghostly and abstract. They claim to lie outside of time and circumstance. So I wonder, you know, is that helpful? I mean, because we we don't live our lives outside of time and circumstance. I mean, you know when Gus comes awake. You know if you're really late on an editing job. You know if you uh, are about to uh, default on a bill and your credit rating is, you know, going to take a hit. You know, you're hoping to maybe get a deposit together to, you know, buy a place. You know, there are a lot of there are a lot of priorities that I think are a lot more important than values, mm. and priorities live within time, but more importantly, as time. How do we define time ourselves? Your imaginative challenge had to do with, you know, how we define history, how it's made. Can we control the making of it? Which is, I think, a really good question. Because obviously humans live without history at some point. 
hard to roll it back, you know, the clock. Um, but sooner or later, we have to, to get back uh, to time, back in time, and back in tune. So that is a bigger idea. Um, but here's the tool for this week. And it, I, I, I've been recording intensively, uh, just on a kind of binge of, an OCD binge of, of making what for me is, is music, which is, you know, <laughs> I, won't, I won't press that too hard, but I'm recording anyway. Yeah. Uh, and I'm heavily into uh, the technical capabilities of, of overdubbing, you know. And I realize, you know, one apparent track of music can actually be 24 or more, you know. I'm, I'm, you know, just a beginning humble recording engineer. I don't know what the real capabilities are. But perhaps it, the, the depth of one track could be just so rich as to be inconceivable. And I was out in my balcony listening to the birds. And I thought, you know, who's to say that the physics and metaphysics of, of that experience isn't equally as, as rich. Maybe we hear in much higher fidelity than we think. You know, I think that's a very interesting idea. So that got me thinking about how we think. And then for some reason I hit on that old expression, the master craftsman is invisible in his workshop. I love that idea, and I think you know even writers you know who are working more conceptually uh, make a very physical thing of their office workspaces, and and feel they kind of disappear into it. You know mm -hmm. that that you're part of what's going on, and so the tool this week is to really think of yourself uh, in different terms, not as a craftsperson or artist. Let go of the craft, let go of the art, let go of the science, and give yourself over to being one of your tools, one of many to hand. Mm -hmm. you know, your hands are tools, your mind is a tool. The subject-object schism is the problem. Well, who's using the tool? Well, put that aside for a moment and just think more tool than artist craftsman and I think one nice way to think of it is don't think of yourself as a musical artist think of yourself as a studio you know because if you I think in, that frees things up in a yeah, really nice way yeah because when your head's in a room the room's in your head yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I dig that I dig that a lot I'm writing it down Okay, well, here's the tip, which follows on this, but is, of course, a little bit, you know, more practical as, as is appropriate. Uh, you'll, you'll like this. This is something you, you think about, too, a lot. Manual dexterity. Mm -hmm. You know, think about that for a moment. Isn't that the first kind of dexterity that you think of? I mean, that's meat and concrete performative dexterity. You know, it's, there's no metaphorical distance. Any other kind of dexterity is sort of conceptual and, and metaphorical. It's at a distance. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's worth spending some time uh, shuffling cards. I talk about that in the, uh, the textbook. 
little bit of you know sleight of hand a little bit of finger movement maybe work on your scales if if you've got a keyboard uh, these things are easily done in passing but here's my special tip for the week because it, it really addresses uh, problems of clumsiness and frustration frustration is 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 what gets us that makes us uh, lose our cool you know there's fear yeah that doesn't happen that often not real terror no you know nah that that's really most people are not even living anywhere close to that but frustration is what blows everything up so get yourself some chopsticks mm. I think some really nice chop, you know, pseudo sort of ivory, the plastic ones, the ones you wash and you hang on to, you know, you don't get them with a takeaway order and throw them out. Some good chopsticks. And then try picking up hard, rigid, right angle shapes. Mm. And I really recommend dominoes. Dominoes. If you can pick up with chopsticks, dominoes really, really easily and com comfortably and move them around and not have your chopsticks sort of, you know, come together, you know. Uh, that's really cool. And then, of course, you can work on your non-dominant hand. You're, but you're improving dexterity, new neural paths, and you're fighting the demon of frustration. That that voice, that tone of your voice that you, you hate to hear, right. you, you know, Oh, you think, God damn it, I don't like that side of myself at all. I really am sorry that someone else heard that. That's not how I want to be remembered or thought of in the moment, you know? Mm -hmm. God. Your, your, tip, so, your tip has actually freaked me out a little bit because as you've been talking, I've been wiggling my fingers. And uh, I don't have the manual dexterity. I haven't even been paying attention to my manual dexterity. Which, by the way, is one of my... Those are two of my favorite words put together in English. I think it just sounds really cool. It's like you're this... Yes. Uh, uh, you know, this... It brings to mind, like, a, like a, I think of a spider made out of laser beams. It's just a cool, cool sounding Ooh, word. I like that. Um, but yeah, man, while you're talking, I'm like, oh, shit. Because, you know, you think as you get older, these things happen. If you don't use it, you lose it. And... I mean, what do I do? I type on a keyboard pretty fast. But, you know, I used to play the guitar. I used to be a guitar player in a heavy metal band. Um, and I could solo and stuff. Now? Oh, dear. Yeah, no. I'm going to start with the chopsticks, but the hands have to be able to do more things. Now that you mentioned it, too, this... You hear people talk a lot about how we sit way more than we used to sit and how that leads mm -hmm. to things like depression because the human body is just not it's not made to sit as much as we do it's not made to poop the way that we poop uh, and the hands aren't doing things that the hands have been doing for hundreds of thousands of years so this goes back to uh, well, pretty much everything that we've been talking about here um, in terms of getting getting the mind right we I was talking to a friend who has been meditating for 10 years and he told me that he, the, the way that he thinks, and I believe him, the way that he thinks is not all in his head. Sometimes he thinks he has thoughts in his feet 
or in his hands because he has a kind of at times full body awareness that you know so that the thoughts aren't just stuck up there but this ties into that 100 percent like i think athletes have this too if i try to shoot like sink a three-pointer i'm doing a lot of computation up in my head but you know lebron james is thinking with his hands and his body and he's just he's making the shot happen so yeah i'll go get some dominoes and some some chopsticks and work this out it's good and for a little bit more inspiration since you mentioned the basketball uh uh idea and you know two great players uh, steph curry is just such a beautiful thing to watch but I went back to watch a, a, a segment on Pete Maravich, uh, a white dude from the 60s, Pistol Pete, mm-hmm. and it's on YouTube. He unfortunately died young of some sort of bizarre, uh, I think it was a congenital disease, but his athleticism was simply remarkable. But his ball control is, is almost, and, and there are a lot of like great players today uh, in the in this documentary, talking about no one can do what he did then. It's just it doesn't forget about race and all that sort of. It doesn't matter. It's about ball control and the amount of time that he got to. You know, he spent so much time. He was the basketball. You know, as Yates said, you know, who can tell the dancer from the dance? You know, it's it just becomes that connection of body and mind. So when we have a mind-body problem, it's because we have a problem with that. We're not doing enough to integrate those, those two uh, dualities, which are really, of course, the same. You know, do we have they're a, the same. Do we have a dream? I've been dreaming like crazy. We, Can I, before you do, I'm so sorry that I just asked you and then I interrupted you, but uh, really quick, I, I, did I tell you about the too, too many mics? I think I might have texted that. Yes, you you, you texted that. Yeah, yeah. I had a, I, a dream with an airplane that was going by me. I was standing on a tarmac. It's you know this big, uh, you know seven, whatever seven. It wasn't a seven forty seven. It was too big for that. But in it across the plane in big bold black letters, it said too many mics. M I K E S, as in too many Michaels. And that has really, really stuck with me. And I've been going on some real, uh, I got these very low dose, as I said, low dose uh, THC gummies. Uh, and it's been making my dream world very intense. But at the same time, uh, you know, I say intense in terms of its uh, lucidity, but not intense in terms of its content, because a lot of it is just been walking around, talking to people, talking to things, talking to trees. But anyway, that's David's David's dream update corner. Well, there are some interesting things there, uh, and I have a question for listeners to when when we link uh, David's dream up with my recent one, uh, because I think it is uh, well in my personal dream records. It's very very unusual for. Uh, for words to really be super significant and and survive mm-hmm. into waking 
moments. I think that there are, there are many dreams where they're there, but they just they, they disintegrate, mm-hmm. you know, upon waking. Mm-hmm. And and last episode uh, or a couple of it, it it's been more prominent uh, in my Ooh. dream life Ooh. of late. And I wonder what people think about that because I mean, here David has too many mics. I mean, and and you could say, well, maybe it's some THC influence there. I don't know. I'm interested in people's theories about. Uh, I mean, I certainly know for a fact there are, and I have the benefit of, of, of the dream records, knowing that there are patterns about, say, if uh, dreams that when one is on the edge of a cold or a flu, you know, my, you know, just your basic flu, there's a certain tendency for, for me, uh, there might be a home invasion dream, and you can kind of see a parallel there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are certain patterns about financial anxiety dreams and betrayal. Uh, that's my crucial anxiety uh, pattern. Uh, somebody I've counted on and known, I've just gotten completely wrong. Mm-hmm. That's the adult version of sort of being naked out in, you know, in the playground or in the street. Uh, but I'm not sure about the, the presence of language and, and, and what is the mysterious driving force in that. Because certainly there's something in, involved in the waking that allows us to remember that. But um, the start of my dream this time was, uh, was historical and big canvas cultural and, and sad. Uh, Paul McCartney had uh, passed away which is, you know, that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's now, you know, in his 80s. And as it turns out, in the dream, it was, it was a really big, big deal. It, it grabbed up a whole uh, two, well, one major generation and half of two others uh, with, re- with real intensity. Suddenly, you know, you think, well, God, what are we going to do? Is there going to ever be another sort of Paul McCartney type of figure? Uh, you know, he got people together after 9-11 and would sing, you know, let it be. Could anyone really do that to 300,000 people live mm-hmm. today? Mm-hmm. No. And it, it really, it stirred up this massive sort of uh, cauldron of emotion. And it was emblematic, of course, not just him. It was a passing away of all of the 1960s musicians, musicians, you know, artists, major, all, they would all disappear. And what would happen? Mm. Uh, and curiously enough, in, in the midst of there was some flash, and this must mean I was coming awake, but there was some flash on Michael Landon, mm. the actor, you know, who was in, you know, mm-hmm. think of it, he was in three major yeah. television shows, Bonanza, Little House on the Prairie, and Heaven's Highway, I think. I mean, he was as huge as television could possibly be. He has, was on the cover of TV Guide more times, 22 times, exceeded only by Lucille Ball and that triggered something in the dream because both those figures were at one point in my celebrity uh, gallery of photos of the 20th century that I showed to students and Michael Landon was complete only a couple of the girls uh, remembered him from Little House in the Prairie 
Uh, and I thought, wow, that kind of massive fame, and it just evaporates. So we think history is solid. I mean, how much more, you know, Michael Lennon is part of Hollywood history forever, TV history, but it's disappearing. And so the Paul McCartney death stirred up this massive uh, social uh, convulsion of people, older people, people in my sort of age group and older, thinking, well, this really is a changing of the guard. This is the singularity because none of the younger remember or care. And it was this, uh, it was quite a disturbing social historical sort of dream. But out of that came a very, very different individual situation. And I wonder if this isn't sort of emblematic of how we all cope with the huge uh, culture-wide canvas. I found myself uh, on my old elementary school uh, playground looking into uh, my classroom, like my fourth grade classroom, at night, so it's dark. And I had done that in real life. And as I woke up, I spoke into the recorder these words. Classroom clocks seem to have a kind of OCD palsy. The movement of the second hand is always certain and yet sudden. In the library of libraries, just as in casinos, there are no clocks. I think that ties in with some of the stuff that we've been talking about in a really odd, synchronistic way. Well, and it's, uh, it's interesting, too, because my mother is visiting right now to help me take care of Gus, and uh, her growing up, her, her kind of idol icon was Michael Landon. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. And oh, my God. A little House on the Prairie. And, and she's a teacher. Yep. Yeah. She's a teacher, too. Yep. She just walked by oh, and nodded her head because she heard Michael Landon. Uh, <laughs> but um, so on to the you know the, the clocks having the OCD uh, suddenness, right? Always we're always sure of what it's going to do, but it always happens suddenly. I love this idea of the the library of libraries not having that. Uh, it's going to take me a little bit to untangle. It's a bit. It, yeah, it's, it's very, me too. It's very enigmatic, but it it's very uh, evocative, and yeah, there's a lot to unpack with that. Very cool. Well, our dreams, you know, too many mics. It's uh, there's there's a whole <laughs> world in there, yeah. and to tie back to our too you many know, mics, Michael. Oh my God. I didn't even think about oh, that. Oh, wow. Yeah. There, you, I didn't... God, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Oh, There's that's just nice. On. That's a nice little harmonic yeah. there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good harmony, yeah. Wow. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I guess that'll do it for this week. Uh, good show, man. Well, uh, thanks, everybody, yeah. for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks everyone, and we'll be back next week. There's more to talk about with with triage and that difference between values and priorities. Have a think about that. Uh, 
interesting that values seem to be something that other people share, that they're bigger than individuals, whereas priorities are always just about, well, what your priority is, you know? Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that's really fair. Uh, and there's something more to be thought about there in terms of how we stand up for ourselves, which is the theme of our Psychic Defense uh, Volume 1, which will be coming out at the end of summer. Uh, but I, it's, it's also maybe the path to self-discipline and self-responsibility. If we can balance those two, being a little bit hard on ourselves, but also a little bit forgiving and accepting and kind of cool and relaxed and yet ready.